How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name is Tony, and I'm an alcoholic. On Tuesday the 25th of November 2003, 52-year-old Anthony John Hardy pleaded guilty to the brutal murders of Sally Rose White, Elizabeth Selina Vallad, and Bridget Cathy McClellan. Three sex workers whose only connection was the money they needed for the drugs that they used. The barbaric nature of their deaths, the disposal of their bodies, and the sadistic callousness with which he abused their corpses shocked a nation to its very core. And in an instant, this anonymous nobody gained infamy being dubbed the Camden Ripper. But as fast as he became famous, he was forgotten. It seems strange that so little is written about him, but then again, very little is known, as although he craved the cruel limelight which his infamous hero once courted, he could be as cheery and chatty as any civilized member of society one minute, and a blank expressionless wall of nothingness the next. Giving nothing to the police? No comment. The lawyers? No comment. Or the psychiatrist. No comment. The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known. As the details are vague, the timings may be sketchy, and even the most solid pieces of evidence only led to the best guesses by experts. So it's hard to understand who he is, as he appeared to be a different person to different people at different times. But by viewing this story from his perspective, it is clear that there were four distinct sides to the personality of Anthony Hardy. The alcoholic, the addict, the sadist, and the maniac. These are the four faces of the Camden Ripper. Part 1. 
Tony the Alcoholic. Over the last decade or so, I've been prone to binge drinking. Cider, wine, vodka, you name it. Although I wouldn't really call myself an addict. It's a crutch I use for when I'm low. That night, I'd drunk till I could drink no more. I'd filled the fridge beforehand to make sure it was properly stocked. But I don't know how much I drank. I blacked out. All I remember after that is being in a police cell. Saturday the 19th of January 2002. The date is correct. The time is unspecified, but it's definitely late. And Anthony Hardy, known as Tony, is standing in the borough of Camden, near King's Cross Station. A ceaseless cesspool of sin, bathed in the sickening neon glow of takeaways, taxi ranks, arcades, bars, B&Bs, and the dull red glow of sleazy brothels. It's a transient place, where the sensible get out as quick as they get in. But the desperate get stuck, as the lost are lured by the promise of sex, drugs, and drink. To some, it's terrifying. But for Tony, each and every street has been his home for the last 12 years, whether under a roof, a doorway, or a cardboard box. But now he's doing okay, not great, just okay. Standing an impressive six foot and one inch tall and 19 stone, although larger than most, he's often mistaken for being bigger than he actually is, owing to his bold persona, his big bushy gray beard, and the massive dark thick layers which he wears to keep out the incessant drizzle and biting winter wind. Dressed from head to toe in black, from his NY baseball cap to his shin-length coat. The only flashes of color are his white smile, his gaudy Hawaiian shirt, and a set of amusing cartoon socks. And although he stands out, he also blends in. As formerly being a man of no fixed abode, he's used to being a nobody to the average person, who only ever converses with the police and social services. Far from being the man he used to be, educated, married, skilled and employed. Over the last two years, he's tried to turn his life around, even going so far as to get his own council flat just a few roads away. But every day has been a daily struggle, and only being six days out of detox, he's relapsed again. He isn't staggering or slurring, as being intoxicated is his normal. So clutching a bag of booze and being single, like most nights, he's here in the seedy recesses of King's Cross, looking for sex. Tony's story is a tragically familiar one for many of the lost souls living on London streets. And that night, like any other, he was unable to think of anything else but fueling his addictions. Summer, 1989. Just shy of 40, a thinner, less grey Tony drove a slightly battered Ford Sierra through the back streets of the city. 
just out of a Norwich prison. On his second stint for reckless driving, criminal damage and being drunk and disorderly. Although disqualified, he used illegal minicabbing to pay his way. Over the last decade, the life of this husband, father of four, and middle-class engineer had collapsed. Being little more than a washed-up ex-con who lived in a cheap squalid bedsit, being divorced, depressed, and separated from his teenage kids, he drank heavily and lost what little he still had. His first 25 years started well enough, but growing increasingly restless, agitated and angry, Tony was hospitalized for 10 days in April 1982 at the Park Center, a psychiatric facility in Brisbane, where he was diagnosed with depression, marked by violent outbursts and exacerbated by drinking. From that day onwards, Tony became a familiar face in London's detox centers, help groups, homeless hostels and psychiatric wards, where he was diagnosed with manic depression for which he was prescribed lithium, but he also self-medicated with alcoholic binges and cannabis. Drinking up to six liters of Frosty Jack cider a day, being a big man, sometimes the booze just dulled the edges of his anxiety. And other times, he drank until he blacked out. In 1992, given his size and alcohol intake, Tony was diagnosed with diabetes. His mobility worsened, his weight increased, and it drastically lessened his sexual function, but not his libido. That same year, his younger brother Barry took his own life, and Tony hit rock bottom, and his life got worse. Evicted from a series of hostels for assaults on its residents and staff, and having been booted out of the Arlington House Hotel by a court of law, Tony found a bed in the Ferndale Hotel, a homeless refuge at 41 Argyle Square in King's Cross. But by then, his mental health had severely deteriorated. On the 30th of April 1995, gripped by the delusion that he was a wanted killer and seeing a police van parked outside his window, Tony dived into the back and insisted on being arrested for his crimes. Seen by the duty psychiatrist at University College Hospital, he said he was hearing voices and a urine test concluded that he was in the midst of a drug-induced psychosis. It was a major psychotic episode, but his mental collapse would get him the help that he so badly needed. From the 2nd to the 5th of May 1995, Tony was a voluntary inpatient at the Huntley Centre at St Pancras Hospital, where he was assessed, diagnosed, medicated and assigned a care worker from the focus team, who helped him to register with a GP, find support groups and assisted with temporary accommodation, so his life could return to some kind of normality. But the next four years would be even tougher. Evicted from the Ferndale Hotel, 
On the 30th of August 1995, Tony took an overdose and was sectioned under the Mental Health Act. On the 3rd of October, being arrested for public indecency, Tony was sectioned again and readmitted to the Huntley Centre, this time for three months spent on the Mornington unit. During his hospitalisation, he was arrested twice for drunkenness and criminal damage to the ward. During Tony's stay, a psychiatrist with the North London Forensic Service wrote two reports about his alcohol abuse, stating, Tony uses alcohol when feeling depressed and to cope with life's stresses. It does not always indicate early signs of a manic episode. Only Tony had many outlets for his anger. One was alcohol, one was cannabis, and the other was sex. Diagnosed as bipolar in January 1996, Tony was given a long-term bed at Argyle Walk, a hostel for the homeless with mental health needs, where he stayed until May 1997, when the focus team secured him a supportive living space at 34 King's Terrace. Unlike a hostel, King's Terrace was a self-contained flat which offered him better support but greater independence and having stability, he flourished. His care worker stated, there have been no episodes of psychosis or hospitalization. His mood has remained fairly consistent, if somewhat subdued. He's doing his own shopping, cooking, and is keeping himself active to minimize isolation. Mr. Hardy's stability at Argyle Walk cannot be overstated but his alcoholism and mental health would always be a struggle and feeling that his life lacked independence. On the 10th of May, 1998, he was arrested for assault, sectioned, and on the 6th of August, that very same year, he was sectioned again and hospitalized in the Cardigan Ward at St. Luke's Psychiatric Hospital. It was a blip in his recovery, but with a renewed focus, to get a home of his own. Across the next year, he fought to turn his life around. On the 3rd of June, 1999, Camden Council offered him a flat. And on the 20th of January, 2000, Tony Hardy became the legal tenant of Four Heartland in Camden. To Anthony Hardy, this was his home. But to his three victims, it would become a house of horrors. Heartland was a brown brick and white-walled four-story council block on the College Place estate, bordered by College Place, Plender Street, and a short walk from the canal and King's Cross. Cheaply constructed in pre-assembled concrete shells, and connected by several stairwells. They're simple, affordable, and to the left of the ground floor stairwell, behind a black front door, sat flat number four. Kept in an orderly state of disarray, it was neither filthy nor stylish, as everything was basic, practical, and had its own place. Up front was a multicolored living room, dominated by a blue sofa, three tellies, a pile of true crime books, 
a coffee table with a neat stack of VHS tapes, and a few feet behind sat his double bed. He had a small grubby kitchen, a grimy little bathroom, and a spare room filled with some furniture should he ever have a friend over to stay, as well as his photographic equipment and his junk. Decorated using a misjudged mix of garish colours and marker pens, almost every wall, ceiling and door was covered in an ad hoc array of indecipherable art by Tony. But they weren't the intricate designs of a skilled engineer, but the doodles of a childlike mind. As if to keep his bad thoughts at bay, the walls were a brightly coloured mural of love, happiness and spirituality. Consisting of everything, from fishes, pets, faces, names, seasoned stars to Celtic crosses. It was like a daily reminder to be happy. On the 7th of August 2001, a full assessment was undertaken, and although alcohol was his main risk, he had joined an art class, a support group, he had cut down his drinking to just two pints a day, he maintained a 10-year relationship with his good friend Maureen Reeves, who he would regularly meet with for a cup of tea, as she listened to his fascinating theories about the infamous serial killer Jack the Ripper. And by September, his care worker had stated that he was being effectively managed in the community. Within his bubble, he was blossoming, but out on the estate, he was struggling. Seen as a bit of a weirdo, who dressed in black, muttered to himself, and only ever socialised with sex workers. After a decade living on the streets, he was unused to dealing with the simple everyday problems of life. In November 2001, with his neighbour's bath in the upstairs flat leaking down into his, unable to even discuss it with her, he got anxious, depressed and proceeded to binge drink. And although he couldn't recall his actions owing to an alcoholic blackout, he bent her car's windscreen wipers and slashed her tyres. The problem was finally resolved and the leak was fixed. But for the weeks afterwards, he seethed. On the 7th of January 2002, Tony voluntarily entered Rugby House, an alcoholic detox clinic in Bermondsey by London Bridge Station. But unable to quit his main addiction, he discharged himself just six days later. By Saturday the 19th of January, just shy of midnight, he was standing in Kings Cross Station. That night, I'd drunk till I could drink no more. I'd filled the fridge beforehand to make sure it was properly stocked. But I don't know how much I drank. I blacked out. All I remember after that is being in a police cell. With a bag of booze in his hand and his flat a few streets away, focused only on fueling his addictions, Tony needed sex. And the girl he chose was Sally. Born on the 23rd of September 1963, Sally Rose White was the youngest daughter of Arthur and Muriel. 
a loving couple who strive to give her all of the support she needed, having been born with brain damage. Educated at a special needs school, although a struggle, Sally had an idyllic upbringing, being raised by the quay in the coastal town of Poole in Dorset, where she thrived and got a job as a shop assistant. But as she entered her 20s, being little more than a child in an adult's body, whose independence was limited to protect her. She became aggressive, repeatedly ran away from home, and slept rough. In 1991, age 28, Sally gave birth to a daughter called Louise. But unable to care for her baby, she was given up for adoption. Relenting to her request to live her life as she wanted, Sally moved to London as her worried parents supported her from a distance. But having refused their help, she began to struggle. She lost her job, her flat, and becoming homeless, she funded her crack addiction with sex work. As a sweet, naive, and easily led girl, she had no idea how vulnerable she was. Being just an innocent little fish who swam in a dark, turbulent sea of hungry sharks. In her final months, her father often scoured the many homeless hostels of London, seeking to bring his baby home. But Sally always refused. On the cold, wet morning of Saturday the 19th of January 2002, being a little dot with a sweet smile, twinkly brown eyes and jet black hair. Wearing blue jeans, a blue jacket and a grey hoodie. 38-year-old Sally was last seen at the Manor Centre in Melia Street in Bermondsey. A charity by London Bridge Station, which provides food, beds and support for the city's most vulnerable. Like so many, Sally was a familiar face as was Tony, who just six days earlier had discharged himself from detox just one street away. Whether he knew her from the hostels, whether they first met that day, or whether he had picked her up in King's Cross as one of hundreds of sex workers he had procured across his life is unknown. All we know is that they were both vulnerable, needy, and desperate. For both, this seemed like a win-win situation, as she was sweet and petite, and he was charming and fatherly. So just shy of midnight, clutching a bag of booze, they both walked back to his warm, cozy flat to feed their addictions. It was an ordinary night, as inside the brightly colored living room at Fort Heartland, Sally sat alongside Tony on the blue sofa where they supped cheap wine, chatted about true crime, got warm, ate, and had a bit of a giggle. Later, as his diabetes made sex a little unpredictable, Tony popped a porno in his VHS player, and when that familiar feeling stirred in his loins, he led Sally to bed. Not his bed behind the sofa, as this was his private space, and he hated messing up his neat blue bedsheets his stack of medications 
and his Space Invaders t-shirt drying on the radiator. So instead, he led her to the spare room. Having folded her jacket and jeans neatly on the floor, dressed in just a bra, pants and hoodie, Sally lay on the bed. Bearing down on top of this small nine-stone girl was the towering naked bulk of a nineteen-stone man, with six litres of cider inside him, a temperamental erection, and a thirst for rough sex. At 4am, a neighbour later stated that they heard a scream. But that could have been anything. The next morning, although the little issue of his neighbour's leaky bath had been resolved back in December, Tony was still fuming. Having previously snapped her wipers, slashed her tyres, and sent her an abusive letter after she found him rummaging through her bins, none of which he could recall, being openly hostile and unable to confront her, as she slept, he vandalised her front door. At 6.40am on Sunday the 20th of January 2002, alerted by the neighbour, Sergeant Nick Spinks arrived at the first floor flat at 10 Heartland. The damage was obvious. With a plastic cider bottle, a litre of sulfuric acid from an abandoned car battery had been poured through a letterbox. Across the white door, in black paint, were sprayed the words, Fuck you, slut, you're a cunt. And as if there was no denying who had done this cowardly petulant deed, the culprit had signed it with the letter T, and as the bubbling acid pulled at the base of the door, the prince of his size 11 trainers led from her door to his. Tony was not happy to see the officers, and although he smelt of drink, not being intoxicated, he fully admitted to the charge of criminal damage and asked to be escorted to the police station. Finding his enthusiasm to be detained elsewhere a little suspicious, with Tony's consent, they searched his flat. They found the cider bottle, the funnel, and a can of black spray paint. Every room was checked, except for the spare room, which Tony stated was sublet to a lady and he didn't have the key. So with him being calm and fully compliant, he was arrested for the minor offence of criminal damage. Before being led outside into the freezing cold morning, sensibly, Tony asked if he could pop on a coat and removing the anorak which hung on the back of his door, the officer searched it first. In the lining, he found a key. The key fitted the locked door. And suddenly, Tony began to sweat as they entered the spare room. With the window locked from the inside, the police knew that no one had entered or exited that room since they had arrived. To the side of the wardrobe, a set of folded clothes had been stashed. On the floor lay a grey hoodie, and tossed on the red rug, a pair of bra and pants 
had been cut into pieces. The room was messy and cluttered, but no more than the rest of the flat, and nothing looked damaged or broken. Above the pillow, a circle of blood marked the point where a head had impacted with the white wall, and leading down to the bed, a dark-haired lady silently lay. Being naked and lying spread-eagle with her legs splayed wide, she was still warm to the touch, and although a blue towel masked her face, with her skin pale, her cheeks mottled, and her lips a bluish hue, it was clear that Sally was dead. Inside her grey hoodie, a sticky mess matched the mass of matted hair on her head's bloody crown. And besides a few bruises, the only other injury was a bite mark to the inside of her right thigh, which matched Tony's teeth. By the bed, he had placed a bucket of warm soapy water and a yellow sponge. As being disturbed by the police, perhaps out of panic, Tony had tried to cover up this accident. Trembling and pale, Tony was arrested for criminal damage, suspicion of murder, and taken to Kentish Town Police Station. As was his right, he replied, no common, to every question, had no recollection of the incident, and he made the officers aware of his alcoholism, diabetes, and mental health issues. For the detectives, it seemed like a pretty solid case of murder or manslaughter, with Tony as the only suspect. He had concealed the body, lied about the key, attempted a clean-up, and the only DNA or fingerprints other than hers, which was found at the scene, was his. He had a history of alcoholism, psychosis, delusions, and violence. And all of his neighbours described him as a nutter, a weirdo, and a loner. On the 22nd of January 2002, while on remand pending his trial for murder, Tony was found guilty of criminal damage and assessed by the psychiatric diversion team at Highbury Corner Magistrates Court. Being described as downcast, depressed, and on the verge of tears, they confirmed that he was fit to stand trial, but stated, Mr. Hardy currently presents in a fragile state. He's still suffering from alcohol withdrawal and depressive and suicidal thoughts, consequent to the situation which he finds himself in. Transferred to Pentonville Prison and put on suicide watch. On the 12th of January 2002, Tony was sectioned under the Mental Health Act and readmitted to the Mornington Psychiatric Unit at the Huntley Centre. But for the police, having completed a thorough investigation, this murder case was a done deal. Or at least, it should have been. On the 15th of April 2002, at St Pancras Coroner's Court, the Home Office pathologist Dr Freddie Patel gave his findings. The autopsy found no evidence of poisoning or assault. The bite mark, bruising and abrasions to her skin 
were not regarded as marks of violence. And although her head wound was consistent with a blunt impact with a broad hard surface like a wall, having possibly occurred owing to a stumble or collapse, the wound had not caused her death. Born with a defective heart, Dr. Patel stated that her cardiovascular system showed a severe coronary atheroma with a 40 to 60% occlusion in the proximal anterior branch. In short, she had died of heart failure during rough sex. Listed as death by natural causes, the coroner concluded that the police have conducted an investigation and although it is obvious that Mr. Hardy is in need of psychiatric treatment, there is no evidence to suggest that he was responsible for the death of Sally Rose White. The trial took less than 15 minutes. The police were not asked to give evidence, and although they took a very rare step of requesting that a second autopsy be conducted, Dr. Freddie Patel returned with the same conclusion, heart failure. The murder case collapsed, the charges were dropped, and although he had been committed to a psychiatric unit, Anthony John Hardy was cleared of murder. The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known, and it's hard to understand who he is, as he appeared to be a different person to different people at different times. But by viewing the story from his perspective, it was clear that there were four distinct sides to the personality of Anthony Hardy. The alcoholic, the addict, the sadist, and the maniac. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Part two of this four-part series into the Camden Ripper continues next week. But if you'd like to know more about this case, Stay tuned for some extra tidbits, as well as a quiz, a bicky, and a cup of tea with me. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporter, who is Kate Wakefield. I thank you very much. As well as a thank you to Simon Monks and Mel for your very kind donations via the supporter link in the show notes. Shares in McVitie's and Mr Kipling have gone through the roof as I plunder the shelves for cake to stock up for Christmas. Although, let's be honest, they probably won't last until Christmas. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. 
Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Oh, it felt longer. Felt like that felt longer than. Oh dear, it wasn't too bad, but it felt a lot longer. Oh dear Lord! Oh God! It's too early because it's a Saturday. I decided to wake up early because it's because even though the, the, the canals get really busy because people are like, oh, I need to go for a walk, and you get all the people out jogging and crap like that. So, oh, so I decided to get up early to do it. And then I realised the seagulls wake up early as well. So I've been battling with the seagulls on this. Right, okay. Uh, let me go and put on my cup of tea. Uh, and then we'll get down to the biz. We'll get down to the biz of the biz. The business. The big biz of business. Oh, look, it's daylight now. Cripes, when did that happen? Uh, cup of tea on. Do you want one? Shall I make you a cup of tea? Shout out now. I can't hear you. Can't hear you. Can't hear you, no, can't hear you. Oh, well, I can't make you a tea then. What shall I have? Shall I have a quaffy? Quaffy, quaffy. Quaffy o'clock, here we go. Right. Instant coffee. Bit of, bit of uh, sucre. There we go. And powdered milk. Powdered milk. Only because I would buy proper milk, but... The Lidl near me. I only seem to do it in two litre jugs. They don't seem to do the little one, which really annoys me. Uh, oh, oh, although, oh, I could still do, hmm, I've got some Angel Delight. I could do a big bowl of Angel Delight today. That'd be good. Anyway, what's going on? Getting into winter now. So the fire's on. That's good. Started putting my fire on. Uh, Mr. Nicholas. All right, la. Thank you very much, Mr. Nicholas. A friend of mine sent me uh, some night logs, which is very nice. Bit of a surprise when I got to my P.O. box. And they went, you got a parcel? And I went, I'm not expecting one. Okay. And they went, be careful, it's a bit heavy. And I looked and it was 25 kilos of logs. And I was like, shit, how am I going to carry these home? But I did. I made it home. I put them in three bags and I carried them home. 
and they're great they're night logs you put them in the fire late at night and they, they keep it just ticking over till the morning which is great so they're really good uh, i also previously i bought, I bought some coffee logs because you know uh, burning wood isn't you know that environmentally friendly but there's there's some logs made from coffee granules which are good and they smell really nice as well so i'm using some of those so i'm all ready for winter and uh, the fire is on not at the moment uh, but it's still warm from last night and i've been roasting chestnuts and doing marshmallows so that's been very nice what else is going on um uh pretty much everything is sorted with all mum and grand stuff which is good that has been a, a very stressful year trying to get that done for the legal stuff is a killer isn't it i know many of you will have dealt with this before but it's a killer isn't it it's like someone passes away and you think that's that's the hard bit done you think oh that was stressful and you know you do the funeral and then it's all that but it's all the legal stuff after that and all of a sudden you realize do you know, if you don't if you don't sort your stuff out beforehand, which is what me and my brother and sister are doing now, we're sorting out our lives and kind of putting things on paper. So if anything happens to us, we've all got a piece of paper that says, right, this is what you do. And I know my dad's already got one because he showed me years ago. He's like, if anything happens to us, it's in our drawer. Everything you need to know, which is I, th- I think that's a good way. So when, you know, if anything happens to any of us, you just get a piece of paper and you go, OK, I can go here, do that, do that, check that, done grand stuff and mum stuff we're having to go through all the paperwork oh it's been a nightmare anyway that's almost done thank god uh we're still in the lockdown two here at the moment lockdown two electric bogolo uh and next week we go into tier two whatever that means everyone's looking at around at each other going oh shit everyone's looking around at each other going what what is tier two sorry my computer switched off for a second then everyone's looking around at each other going what is tier two what does it mean and it's like we've looked at the lists and everyone's still slightly confused i know it's meant to be more clarity for everyone but i I don't think it is i don't think it's more there's more clarity here anyway makes a difference to me i live in my own special little lockdown anyway so uh so next week will be no different i'll be churning out more episodes of murder mile uh what else uh this series i hope um hope you enjoyed that first episode it's something different uh it's been a hard one to write because i'm trying to do it in a very different different way uh it's one of these things where i thought to myself yeah like a year ago year and a half ago i thought yeah let's try and do anthony hardy uh because there's not a lot written about him and i thought that'd be quite interesting to do and then i realized that no one has written anything about him because there's nothing written it's there's there's pieces out there there's a lot of tabloid crap and what I've spent the last year doing is double checking everything. And the bulk of the stuff that's out there is dog shit. Absolute dog shit. Uh, no, there's no books written about him. There's one or two that are out there and they are just utter shit. Literally like like a couple of pages long or, or like he appears in a couple of chapters. And even those are dog shit as well. So I thought, wow, this is going to be difficult. There's no archive files as well. Uh, luckily, his mental health inquiry was av- available. So I was able to use that. And then I've just spent the year compiling different pieces and building basically a Bible to do. I had to use the word Bible when you connect to Anthony Hardy. But, you know, a Bible is in a kind of a big comprehensive guide. And I've done a chronology of his his life and I've broken it down to literally in some day places. It's like... Uh, days months even down into minutes as well of where he is to try and cross-reference everything to make sure everything's correct and where he was and then going in and like going okay the hoodie was gray or you know the 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 bed clothes were green and you know having to do all that just literally little details to try and get it right but i think it's made for a nice four-part series uh so 
just to say, if you listen to this episode and you're like, oh, I know this case, blah, 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 uh, and then you're like, oh, Michael's missed out some details there, and you're like preparing an email now to say, you've missed out these details. Don't. This is specifically written in a very specific way. So um, you'll, you'll get it as you go through the series, but it's Anthony Hardy in four different parts. So you see his perspective on different parts of... It'll make sense when you get through it. So that's part one. So that's the case there, but... It's been really difficult to write because there's things that I, things that I want to tell you and things that I can't tell you yet because it leads into part two or it leads into part three. So you know his alcoholism in part one plays in part two, but then his use of sex workers plays into part three, and then some of the things he's done lead into part four. And then when you start getting episodes two, three, and four together, then you go back and listen to one, and then you're like. Oh, that okay. That I now I see it's that kind of you know I'm deliberately hiding things in different places and I'm deliberately telling you things and I'm deliberately kind of half telling you things. So I'm giving you all the details, but then I'm not at the same time. So I'm having fun with it, but it's 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 I think it's an interesting way of trying to work out who he is because there is no way of working out who he is. And teeth up. Uh, oh great. Oh, I did a coffee. I've done a coffee. I've done a go-go. So, yeah. So, that's all interesting. And then, uh, uh, bloody sod's law. I couldn't have waited. Last night, it was announced. Spoilers. Last night, it was was announced that Anthony Hardy had passed away. That he died in a hospital. So, uh, that was slightly annoying. Because I was like, oh, I'm really gearing up for this. Like, really gearing up to get all my episodes ready. And if he would have died next week, or when... You hear this, that would have been great, but he died, he died yesterday, which is really annoying. So it hasn't really hit the papers yet. To be honest, most people don't care about him, so uh, no one really gives a shit. But I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, podcast episodes going out of people rushing and using Wikipedia to do an episode. There's, there's nothing on Wikipedia, and the stuff that's out there is shit. So people are going to send you the same uh, shite. Sorry, my computer keeps switching off. This is really annoying. Uh, People are probably going to do you a couple of cheapy one-part episodes out there about Anthony Hardy, but this has taken me a year to get this right. So uh, I hope you enjoy this. It's a uh, it's a complicated one. It requires it requires four episodes. It really does to get it right. Uh, what else is there? Um, uh, if you're a Patreon subscriber, there's loads of new extra stuff that's going to be on there. I'm going to be into town this week filming some extra stuff. So I will film you the locations as well. There's quite a few locations and some previously unreleased things that are found as well. So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, what else is there? Uh, I think that's it. Oh, last week I witnessed a shooting. Oh, yeah, uh, that was interesting. I was up. I, I was up with my iPad at the uh, tube station. And uh, I was downloading all my programs, trying to download the final for Bake Off still, which it won't bloody download. So don't tell me who's won. Um, I don't I don't care. I, ho- I hope it's uh, what's his face. Uh, Peter. I hope Peter won because he's, he's the only one who really deserved to be in the final. I think Dave with wobbly shoulders. He's made too many mistakes. And Laura's nice, but she's not good enough. It should have been. It should have been Lottie. Let's, let's agree. It should have been Lottie. It should have been Peter. It should have been uh, Ermine, who was excellent. And uh, the the guy with the stubbly beard, who was re- who was really good. I thought he was really good. It should have been those four, really. But 
you can't have everything anyway to people who don't oh, don't watch bake off uh, anyway uh, so yeah no i witnessed a shooting which was weird i was up at the the tube station uh, i was downloading all my programs on the ipad i've now been banned from downloading programs on the ipad in the tube station and then there, there i was like there were five shots i looked across the street and a, a young man had been shot and was lying in the street and i was like what the, what the f is going on this is this is this is Britain. We don't have stuff like that. We have gentlemen's arguments where people are poisoned or, you know, things like that, or duelling. You know, you don't have uh, twats with guns. Anyway, yeah, someone got shot. <sighs> Very exciting. It's weird. It's weird. The sound of a um, the sound of a gun going off doesn't sound like a gun going off. It's weird. It, uh, like they always say, the sounds never hit, sound like you think that they would. But this was... It, it, it sounded more like someone getting a very heavy doormat and banging it outside to get rid of the dust it sounded more like that it was weird it was a weird echo to it so uh whether it whether it was some type some type of uh gun don't forget in, in this country we don't really have a lot of new guns we have a lot of the um the problem is our country is flooded by uh start of world war Two because we had no guns because we don't have a gun culture um we got a load of second-hand guns from uh america cause obviously america has an excess of guns so the what their spare ones were sent over here and then at the end of the war uh the there's a big gulp of them like tons and tons of them are actually dumped in the in the i was gonna say the thames uh in the channel uh so there's loads of them dumped in the channel but unfortunately quite a lot of them didn't actually uh make it to there people kept them as souvenirs and the problem is people keep them as souvenirs and then they sell them off and then they deactivate them and then it's easy to reactivate them so we've got a lot of antique guns or kind of ones from 1920s 30s and 40s which are still being used today so they're they're pretty lethal ah anyway anyway guns eh right people oh cake of the day went to Lidl yesterday treated myself because obviously yesterday we sorted out all the mum and grand stuff so uh, after the stress of that i thought i'd have a treat and i treated myself to a chalky donut lovely chalky donut with chocolate sprinkles on top so i've got two there i can have those shortly right Let's do a quiz. Core, my head hurts. Right, quiz time. I'm probably going to balls up some of these. So question number one. Just checking how much much we've done next extra mile. Right, question number one. Get ready, everyone. Question one. Sally and Tony. What were their middle names? Oh, it's two-parter. Oh, exciting. Look at that. Oh, two-parter. Sally and Tony. What were their middle names? Uh, question number two how much i paused then because i thought i'd miswritten the question question two how much did tony state that he drank each day so how much did tony drink each day you can give yourself a bonus point if you can name his favorite cider that was another little bit of research by me it's not written down there but i did my usual research of going 7.5 percent uh cider and we know it was in two liter bottles so i went searching and i kind of i I guessed it would be this one anyway uh question number three um tony was on seven prescription drugs which one was he on for depression i mentioned this earlier in the episode question number four who is tony's oh should, should really say was shouldn't we who was tony's serial killer hero Question number five. How many tellies did Tony have? So how many tellies in his front room did Tony have? 
You can take a guess at that one. Question number six. What was the name of the what was the name of the supported living accommodation that Tony got before he moved into his flat in Heartland? Oh, can you remember that one? Question seven. Why did Tony jump out of a window at the Ferndale Hotel? Question number eight. What were some of the things that Tony painted on his walls and doors? In the later episodes, we're really going to go into the the fine details about his flat. I've, I've given you a basic overview now, but it's it's fascinating and it gives you an insight into his mind. So that's going to crop up again. There's a lot of things that I've kind of glossed over in this episode because I know we're going to go into them fully later on. So but it's all about perspective in this. Uh, this is interesting because it's been I've been desperate to write an episode where you see things from the different same thing from a dis, different perspective uh, for ages. And then I was like, oh, this is the episode where I can do that. Uh, question nine. Uh, what was Sally's daughter's name? Uh, who she put up for adoption. And question 10. What country did Tony previously live in and spent time in a psychiatric ward? Mm, that was early in the episode. Do you remember? Oh, that coffee's too hot. Right, cool. Uh, I'm going to try and give you some extra stuff or... or go through some of the stuff that we've already done but what i'm going to try and do is not mess up the quiz but also try and not mess up the episodes as well so uh, uh obviously tony had many kind of mental health episodes as they called it uh throughout the series the ones that were listed here there's a lot more um when we go to when we go to episode four we'll really be di- diving into kind of the violence of his past so um in this episode, I've I've really been very careful on what I've kind of told you in here because there are things that I don't want to tell you yet because they're more important later on. So you need to I want I want you to see him as a sympathetic character as an alcoholic here, and then because when you start with him sympathetically and then you see part four, you get to that episode. What I want you to do is go, wow, okay, who is he? Who is he? And this is this is why it's hard to pin down who he is because he's very. He's very different to different people. He's a very different character. I don't think he's schizophrenic. I think he is. I, I'm not going to give too much away. I think. I, I think. I think. Hopefully, in across the episodes, you'll kind of come to your own conclusion because there is no real conclusion here, uh, and there definitely isn't now because he's dead. So, uh, so we'll just try and dive into a couple of things here. Oh, this is one of the questions. So I don't know whether I can give away too much of this. I'll skimp on it. 30th of April 1995, this was one of the uh, uh, episodes he had. Uh, he was admitted as a voluntary patient initially at the University College Hospital on Gower Street. Gower Street, the University Hospital, that's where uh, Dr. Spilsbury was based. Obviously, Spilsbury died, died 50 years before. Uh, uh, Tony Hardy was... If you notice in this episode, I call him Tony. It's very deliberate because uh, everyone calls him Anthony Hardy, but all his friends called him Tony. So deliberately in this, this episode, I call him Tony to make you like him a little bit more. It's good fun, right? Writing someone who's horrible, but writing him sympathetically, it's good fun. Uh, anyway, uh, so uh, as mentioned, he was homeless at the time, drinking, using a lot of cannabis. Um, 
as mentioned, he, he'd uh, jumped out of his window at the Ferndale Hotel. I'm not going to explain why, because that's one of the questions. Well done, me. Uh, the police, quite rightly, took him to uh, A&E, and he was ranting and raving. They said he was clearly psychotic. Uh, they weren't sure whether it was drug-induced. Uh, but w- when he got there, he seemed to be presenting quite well. Uh, the records say he was taken to accident and emergency at St Pancras Hospital initially, where he was interviewed by a psychiatrist and was therefore admitted as a voluntary patient at the hospital psychiatric unit. Interesting, the um, the psychiatric unit is one street away from his home. It's it's literally w- within spitting distance. You can pro- you can see the ward from his house. Uh, he was seen by the duty psychiatrist, uh, and they said uh, when he presented there, he was nearly mute with his head in his hands. Uh, when he did speak, his speech was uh, tangential and abnormal in form. The following day, he admitted to hearing voices of people saying they would beat him up. Uh, he also said that he was communicating with the television. Uh, he had a history of heavy drinking. And a urine screen, sorry, that was a burp then, uh, uh, and a urine screen said that he was positive for cannabis and this was diagnosed as a drug-induced psychosis. Uh, So this was the first time that he was referred to the Huntley Centre. Two names that we've put in here, the Huntley Centre, which is at St Pancras Hospital, the the Mornington Unit, sorry, there's three names in there. Uh, The Mornington Unit is in the Huntley Centre, which is in the St Pancras Hospital. They like to make it difficult. Uh, so that's there. Uh, we're going to come back to that again soon. And then you've also got the Cardigan Unit, which is at St Luke's Psychiatric Hospital. That will appear later on as well. So these are these are two important names to remember for the next week. But I'll I'll remind you about that. Don't worry. Uh, so that was his, that was his first time um, committed to that ward. Uh, but from that point, that was quite good. Uh, he'd been on the streets for about five years. He got. They said he got no community supports, so he was kind of living homeless off his own wits. He hadn't got a doctor. Uh, so from this point onwards, they were able to kind of get him sorted out. It must be horrible if you're homeless, because, you know, what do you do? You can't, you can't get a job because you don't have a place to live. You don't have an address. You, you know, you can't get references. You know, you probably don't have a bank account. You know, it, I guess when you're in that hole, you just can't, you can't get out of the hole because it's so difficult. Uh, so he'd been homeless for uh, quite a long time I mean it's he'd definitely been homeless since about 90 but he might have been homeless in kind of the late part of the 80s as well there's a big chunk of his life which we'll go into in part four where it's it's uncertain where he is and what he was doing we know he was definitely doing some illegal minicabbing but uh, and we'll learn more about his early part of his life as well Um, I'm going to avoid that bit Sorry, I'm being very careful not to give too much away. Um, as mentioned, 30th of August 1995, he had a major overdose. They didn't say of what, uh, whether it was on his prescription medications or... Because he was on cannabis, but, it's, you know, it's hard to really overdose on cannabis, really, unless he was on something le- lethal, like some kind of lethal skunk or something. But skunk weed, skunk weed. If you, if anyone's from Brixton who's listening to this, you will know Skunkweed man who's outside Brixton Station. Skunkweed. Was well, I walked past him once and he looked at me and because I'm about six foot tall, bald, <laughs> wearing a blue jacket, and he looked at me and he went, "Cop." 
<laughs> that was it. So I can never, I can, I can never get drugs when I was in Brixton because <laughs> I looked like a copper. Although, although once I will admit, I did uh, with a, a mate of mine. I did, I did buy something. We've no idea what we bought. It was something. I think one day we bought we bought some, uh, some what what appeared to be cork, and then another day, my mate wanted want me to get a pill for him. He wouldn't buy it himself, so I met this guy got this random pill off this guy gave it to my mate no idea what it was and he sat there and he took it and nothing happened and we were like what was it we've no idea what it was it's probably like a angina tablet or something anyway <laughs> what are you gonna do if you don't have a receipt uh, <coughs> um i'm gonna ignore that bit uh oh, trying to be really careful one oh I'll tell you what let's skimp down a bit i'm not gonna tell you too much about the flat let's because we're going to get into that again soon. We're going to do the artwork. We're going to ignore that. Uh, let's talk about Sally. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, let's talk about Sally. Okay. Just Sally Rose White. In a lot of the documentation out there, uh, it's weird. Even in like some of the court documents, they say she was 31. But if you do your research properly, she's 38. So she's born in Southampton on the 23rd of September 1963, youngest daughter of Arthur and Mura White. He was a computer expert. Uh, they said that uh, when she was about seven months old, they realised that she had developmental problems and it was put down to brain damage, possibly owing to a lack of oxygen at birth. Um, up until the age of 16, so that's 1979, uh, she was uh, at a special school. Uh, Mid-1980s, they moved to Poole in Dorset, uh, the family lived by the quay, so a nice nice place to live. And for a short period, everything was going well. She managed to hold down a job as a shop assistant. Um, all of her employers were very supportive of you know her needs and understanding. Uh, but she got older, as you can probably appreciate. You know, becoming an adult, wanted all of her friends going off, living new lives, getting married, getting their own flats, getting cars. And obviously, because she's... She struggles a bit coping with life. Do you know, it's kind of harder for her. So she became, they said she became more violent, quite badly behaved, struggled to hold down her jobs, uh, owing to her learning difficulties. Um, uh, she started running away from home and sleeping rough. Uh, her father would obviously in regular contact with the police and they'd go out and search for her and bring her back home. But it, it would happen. It'd be a cycle. It would happen again. They tried their best to kind of, do everything that there was right for her but you know she wants her own independence and she can't appreciate the fact that she's uh mm, i'm gonna swig of coffee she's not having a swig of coffee i'm having a swig of coffee she can't appreciate that you know she needs someone to look after her but she wants her independence so you know what they did they did the best that they could they gave her kind of a enough of a leash so she could kind of be free and kind of kept an eye on her from a distance um so she moved to london lived independently for a while her parents kind of she got a small flat and a job and you know her parents were kind of keeping an eye on her from a distance and you know trying to give her all the support that she need but she wanted to be independent um as mentioned she became homeless she was known around a lot of the salvation army hostels around that area um and she seemed to go into a spiral as, so as you can appreciate she's quite easily led by other people um she turned to cocaine uh, and she got into prostitution to fund that. Uh, so obviously, you know, if you think about it, she bumps into uh, Tony Hardy and he's, you know, uh, 
20 years older than her, bigger than her. He's got big bushy beard. A lot of people who spoke to him said, you know, he does, he does have a violent streak, but he does come across as incredibly charming and intelligent and, you know, because he is intelligent as well. Um, so and he, and he can be quite charming and polite and, you know, quite good fun to chat to as well. So uh, we'll, we'll dive into that later on. There's uh, I mentioned briefly about his, his uh, friend, um, Maureen, who he had a long-term friendship with. And that's kind of interesting when you look at his relationship with women. So uh, we'll dive into that a, a lot later on. But, uh, yeah, no, the parents did, did really well to try and do the best that they could. But, you know, uh, when Sally's life collapsed, she went into prostitution. It's kind of hard to find her. Her father was going back and forth from London, from Dorset to London. Uh, in the months leading up to that, trying to find her, going into homeless hostels, trying to find her. By that point, her parents had all, were already living in Portugal, it was believed, by that point. So it made it even more difficult for, for them to to do that they're probably i'm guessing they'll probably retired by that point uh so last day she was seen was on the 19th of january 2002 at the manor society uh on uh 12 melia street in bermondsey it's still there today it's a uh a it's it's a church of our lady of uh, la saleta and the saint joseph catholic church it's part of the slovak catholic mission in london Sorry, it's got a long title. Uh, so it's a day centre. It's still there today. It's open from like 8.30 to 1.30. It's a brown brick church right at the back of the immigration service. And they kind of provide food and clothes and bedding and support for people. And, uh, you know, it's a fantastic, um, a fantastic uh, uh, charity. Uh, so she was quite well known there. Um, likelihood is that Tony Hardy was known there. He will get into this later on with the his other stuff but he he was bounced around a lot of hostels in the 10 years that he was here and he was so he was known I, i've met quite a few homeless people and like i i, I tried to get a, a homeless guy recently into a hostel he was like can you help me with some money and i was like no because i don't do giving people money but i was like do you, what are you looking for you need to get into a hostel he's like yeah and i was like okay well i'll sort you out so i had my laptop with me and we, we going through all the hostels and i was like okay look there's one a bed available here and he's like oh i can't do that one I was like, why is that? Oh, I've been kicked out of that one. Okay, we'll try this one. No, I'm not allowed back there. And it literally, we're going through it. And it's like, I was going through a list of 20. And it was like, oh, what about this one? It was like, uh, it's too far. And it's like, yeah, but it's the only place you can get in tonight. And it's like, it, it must be difficult if you've got, if you've got mental health problems or drink problems and you need a, a bed to stay and you're trying to raise the, uh, you're trying to raise like the 20 pounds a night to stay in a hostel and then, do you know, because a lot of these chari these charity ones are, are good, but they've only got limited beds. So, uh, yeah, it must be a real nightmare. Uh, so, um, so yeah, no. Uh, so Sally was was well known there. It's highly likely that Tony was. It was only by doing this research because I've got this chronology and I put all these pieces together. And I, I even though like a lot of the uh, journalists on this, when they look at it, they just put down details. They go, he was here on this point, and you just go, okay, where is that place? Like. Like I don't know, let's invent somewhere. Bruno House. And they go. He 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 walked out of Bruno House on the twelfth. And you go. Okay, well, where's Bruno House? So I, what I do is I go in and go. Right, where's Bruno House? Where was it then? Is that correct? Find it. And here that that's why when I was looking at this when he left Rugby House, the detox centre. That's how how I was able to work out where it was because I looked and it's on. It's just on the other side of uh, London Bridge Station, whereas. Sally's regular place that she'd come to was the Manor Centre, which is just so it's lit they're literally one street away. So the likelihood is he would have gone to that hostel. 
she she definitely is so they probably did know each other we're not too sure this is why i've kept it vague in there um because we don't know i would have loved to have written that they they met that morning outside the manor center which they may have done but we can't prove that so uh i haven't put that in uh but it's one of those this is the problem with this story there's there's some details that are very accurate there are some details that are just you, there's nothing on them so um I've got to leave it vague, unfortunately. But that's uh, that's part of the interesting thing about the story of the Camden Ripper is that because he did, he gave. He, we'll go into this later on, but he he gives no comment a lot, which is his legal right. No comment, no comment, no recollection. I don't remember this. But when he wants to, he can he can chat about stuff and he can keep talking. But other times, he's just no comment. We'll dive into this a lot later, but there's 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 things where he just refused to talk, and now he's dead. We will never know. So uh, that that will make part four quite interesting now that he's snuffed it <sighs> so let's do the answers to the questions yeah oh let's because i've waffled too long right question number one sally and tony what were their middle names her middle name was rose his middle name was john question two how much did tony state that he drank each day it was, on average, six litres of Frosty Jack cider. Nice bit of research by me then. It's about two pounds, uh, about just under two pounds for a two litre bottle of 7.5% cider. It's pretty nasty. Uh, question three. Uh, Tony was on seven prescription drugs eventually by the end. Uh, what was he on for depression? He was on lithium. Question four. Who is Tony's serial killer hero? Mentioned in here, Jack the Ripper. Question number five. How many tellies, i.e. televisions, did Tony have? Uh, he had three. Um, just just for clarity, in uh, this murder case, he only had two tellies. But later on, he has three tellies. Um, although I haven't bothered to put that into this episode because it just confuses them. Why do we need to know that you had two then and bought one another one later? It's if I say three now and then we understand that it, it's to so we understand this is kind of his shrine. Is his front room is kind of a shrine where he watches all his pornography? Uh, question number six: What was the name of the supported living accommodation that Tony got before his flat in Heartland? <gasps> that was King's Terrace. Question number seven. Why did Tony jump out of the window at Ferndale Hotel? He thought that the special branch, i.e. Uh, the, the uh, uh, coppers, evening all, uh, were after him uh, for being a wanted killer. Interesting. Question eight. What were... Uh, question eight. What were some of the things that Tony painted on his walls and doors? They were, you can name any of them, really, you don't need all of them. Uh, fishes, pets, faces, names, seas, stars and Celtic crosses. We'll dive into those quite de in a detailed way later on. They're really fascinating. And if you're on um, uh, if you're on Patreon, I've got loads of pictures of his artwork. So we'll put those on and we can have, we can have a good old, ugh, have a good old gander at them. Question number nine. What was Sally's daughter's name who she put up for adoption? Her name was Louise. And question number 10. Which country did Tony previously live in and spent time in a psychiatric ward? It was Australia. 
Good. That's that done. So I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, we've got three more episodes to go, uh, and that will bring us up to Christmas Eve. What I, I'm thinking about doing, I might do a Christmas Day episode, just a kind of a, a welcome and Merry Christmas and all that episode. Uh, I'm probably... Get, ooh, oh, I'm a bit windy now. Ooh, that was, that was rude. <laughs> Bacon sandwich. Ooh-wee. Um, wow. Okay. That was nice. Um... Uh, so yeah, and I'll probably do an ooh, <laughs> probably do an omnibus episode as well, just because it's a four parter, and you know it kind of makes sense to put them out. Uh, and then that takes us to the end of the year when I can take a bit of a rest. So hope you all well. Hope you all have a good week. Stay safe. Be good. Uh, speak to you all soon. Lots of love. Okay, tatty bye. Bye 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 bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to Amazon.com slash news ad free. That's Amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.